They could be religious about a global warming, uh, a certain cause, and they are um, faithfully devoted to that. Or they could be uh, faithfully devoted to a hobby, collecting certain things. So people can be religious about a lot of different things. But think about it in the church context. There is a major, huge difference between a person that's religious and a true disciple of Jesus Christ. The gospel introduces new categories for us. It puts faith and works in proper perspective. And that's what we'll be looking at in our passage this morning, uh, that faith and works need to be in a proper perspective. So please, uh, once again, I'd like to read our passage uh, this morning, found in Matthew chapter 9. This is the word of God. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst, worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Last week, we saw that the Pharisees were asking a question to Jesus and his disciples. Why is he hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? What's, what's the story? It doesn't compute with how we understand our religion. Well, this morning in our passage, a different group of people are asking Jesus a question. And it's the disciples of John the Baptist. We've seen earlier in, in the Gospel of Matthew that John's been arrested, and yet he still has people who are his disciples, his followers, and they've been watching Jesus as everyone else has been in this area, and they are asking a, a, a question. And the question is, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? See, the Pharisees, uh, in Luke 18, 12, uh, they've been, they fast twice a week, like on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so the disciples of John were also fasting. And, and they're, they're, they're saying, you know, we're doing this and so are the Pharisees. Why aren't your disciples, your followers, also fasting? They might have had a, an idea that, you know, we're being really religious. We're, we're fasting twice a week and your disciples aren't fasting at all. So what gives? Why is there a difference? See, this uh, behavior by the Pharisees is an expression of their practice of Judaism. It's interesting, if you look throughout the Old Testament, there's only one time that we're commanded to fast in the Old Testament, and that was on the Day of the Atonement. 
Now, obviously, there was other times that people fasted, but there was only one command in the Old Testament to fast, and that's once a year on the Day of the Atonement. But for the Pharisees, they uh, changed their behavior because their understanding of the Old Testament was distorted. They misunderstood the Old Testament message, and, it, and they made it man-centered rather than God-centered. And so the, the disciples of John come to Jesus and say, ask him this really simple question. And it's interesting, Pastor Ryan uh, taught on this recently, and a lot of the ideas that uh, I'm sharing uh, come from him, so I wanted to give him this, his, his due and his credit. But as we think about uh, religious rituals or duties or routines that we go through as Christians, what would be some of the things that we would come up with? Well, I think one routine that many Christians do is they read their Bibles. We call them devotions. Uh, oftentimes, first thing in the morning or just before going to bed. Uh, another ritual or uh, routine that oftentimes Christians go through is, is they pray. They spend time praying to God, talking to him, just like you would do someone that you're close with. Another religious ritual or routine that Christians do is what you're doing right now is uh, come and attend church uh, every Sunday to encourage each other, spend time hearing from God's word. Uh, another way that we uh, have a, a ritual or a routine is by giving to the church. Well, all of these things are good uh, in and of themselves, but there's a big difference between a person that's religious and a disciple of Jesus, and we'll be emphasizing that or looking at that as we continue throughout this message. But John MacArthur says this. He says, religious ritual and routine have always been dangers to true godliness. In other words, we can think we're godly or righteous simply by doing certain religious routines, activities, when in fact, if we've never repented of our sin and trusted in what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, we're just being religious. We're just doing these routines and thinking that we're right with God when we may be just religious. And that's really what we see here. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were missing who Jesus was. So in verse 15, we read, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus uses a well-known example of a wedding. People don't go to weddings normally to mourn and to grieve. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. In fact, I believe there's a wedding coming up here in a, in a few weeks. And my guess is that Pastor um, Mike might shed a tear or two 
but they will be tears of joy rather than mourning because his daughter is getting married. Weddings are not known for people grieving. And Jesus uses that example. The bridegroom, which is me, I'm the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is with you, you don't mourn. Fasting is oftentimes done in times of mourning, of repenting. See, the relationship with Jesus is the key. That's what's important. And if we have a relationship with, with Christ, our lives then should be uh, reflective of the joy that we have because we know him. It's interesting, if you look uh, in the Old Testament, the uh, person that is described as the bridegroom, God uses that for himself. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, which I think is in your bulletin, um, God describes himself as the husband of Israel. He's the bridegroom. Israel's his bride. This language is not just used about God in the Old Testament. Also, we find it in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, there we see the roles of the husband and the wife. The husband's told to love his wife as Christ loved the church. So husbands, that's our marching orders. That's what we are to do how we are to relate to our wives as Christ loved the church so we also should love our wives. Wives are also told in that same passage to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. So the, the relationship that Christ has with the church is, is being used as, as the wedding illustration. And so our marriages, if we're both believers in Jesus Christ, should be a reflection of the gospel. In fact, it tells us that later on in the, the chapter in Ephesians, that marriage is a mystery that reflects Christ's love for the church. And so as we love one another in our marriages, we are a living example of the gospel. Jesus here is the bridegroom. He's saying, you guys, the Pharisees and the disciples of John, you're missing this. You don't understand who I am. Because if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be fasting while I'm here with you. Because I'm the one who's been promised from the Old Testament to come to rescue all people from their sins. But if we look even further in, in the Bible, into the book of Revelation, we see the image of a wedding feast once again. And it's interesting, in Revelation chapter 19, we see that the lamb is the one who is described as the bridegroom. And that lamb is Jesus. And we will, as believers, one day have a wedding feast in heaven with Christ that will be glorious. All the believers throughout history will be gathered at that wedding. 
and the bridegroom, the lamb, Jesus, will be there. So Jesus is the reason that we're not fasting and mourning. He's the reason why we are rejoicing and feasting. I can't imagine at the wedding that will be coming that there won't be a lot of joy and celebration and music and food. And imagine if you went to a wedding and said, oh, sorry, I'm fasting. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. No. We go to a wedding to encourage the couple, to support them, to say, yes, we are uh, behind you. We want to encourage you. We are thankful. We're happy for you. We, west, uh, we wish our best wishes for you. It's not a time of grieving or mourning. But Jesus has a second part to the answer, notice. He first said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The answer is obviously no. But he also says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So here in the Gospel of Matthew, this might be the first reference or foreshadowing of Jesus' death. Right now, my, my disciples aren't fasting, just like the Pharisees and, and you guys, because I'm the bridegroom. I'm the one who was promised in all those prophecies in the Old Testament I'm, I'm, I'm here with you. So it should be a time of joy and celebration. But there will come a day when I'll be taken away. And that is a reference to his death. We also know that Jesus then, after his death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven and he's with the Father right now. And so kind of the, the obvious question that we need to ask ourselves is, should we as believers today be fasting? And I believe the answer is yes, but in a different way than the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, which I believe you looked at, I don't know how many weeks ago, but there Jesus says, when you fast... Remember that? When you fast, don't draw attention to yourself. Oh, man, I've been, you know, not eating for like three days, you know, and I'm really hungry and, you know, I'm like really, you know, sad looking and, you know, um, making everyone aware of, you know, hey, look at me, I'm fasting. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6. You don't draw attention to yourself when you fast. Clean your face. You know, um, so yes, we should be fasting as believers today, but differently than the Pharisees. It, it's not a, you must fast on a Tuesday and a Thursday, and it's like a rule, and if you don't, then, you know, bad, bad on you. It's something that we do voluntarily when, when the time or the need arises. So when would be appropriate times for us to fast? Well, fasting does relate oftentimes to times of mourning, of, of grieving, uh, of expressing a brokenheartedness or sadness over sin. God, I'm struggling with a temptation. 
I, I'm, I'm not having victory over it. I, I'm, 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 I'm grieved. So God, I'm going to fast so that I can focus my attention on my relationship with you and trust in you in a greater way regarding this particular thing that's happening in my life. It's a, it's a time to express reliance on God. God, I'm going to trust you in a greater way for this period of time. It could be simply a time of crisis. I have to make a, a major decision. And so I'm going to take some time to fast and pray about that decision. So, so fasting today is, is appropriate, but it's, it, it, it's not something like the Pharisees where you must do it or you won't be right with God. So our first observation this morning is that Jesus determines what his disciples do. Jesus determines what his disciples do. If we know Jesus Christ, we're a follower of his, we're a disciple of his, then we will have a, a lifestyle that's reflective of joy and, and celebration because we know him. Yes, Jesus has gone to be with the Father, and he will come again. But Jesus says, I am with you always until the end of the age. Well, how is that possible? Well, he sent God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells within us. So there's a sense that, yes, Jesus is definitely gone. He's not here in the flesh right now, but we do have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our life should be generally known for a joy that is like, how can you be joyful in a time like this? It makes me think of Philippians 4.4, 4, where it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Have you ever thought about how that's possible for believers? How can we rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice when my a child just passed away or I just found out bad news from the doctor or I got laid off. There's things that will happen in our life that are difficult, that are hard, that are not good. We, I, I've been sinned against. I've been wronged. It hurts. But because of my relationship with Jesus because I know he's the bridegroom and I'm in a relationship with him because I've repented of my sin and trusted in his death and resurrection, I can rejoice even in difficult times. Even in uh, this last year and a half of COVID, what a difficult time that's been. But as believers, we can rejoice because we know the Lord. Or as James 1-2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's not saying that we're not going through trials or the thing that you're experiencing is not a trial. It is. It's hard. But we can count it joy because we know the bridegroom. We have that relationship with him. We know him. See, Jesus has brought a new internal gospel 
It's different from the old external traditions of self-righteousness and ritual. If I just do these certain things, you know, fast on Tuesday, fast on Thursday, you know, give to the church, uh, show up to church, read my Bible, you know, be nice to my neighbor, um, then I'll be righteous or in right standing with God. No. The gospel is one of knowing and understanding that we're all sinners, that there's nothing that you and I can do to earn our salvation, and we have to humble ourselves before God and say, God, I trust you. I believe in you. So Jesus' disciples still might do the same activities as someone who is religious, but they do it differently. So we fast differently. Like I said, we don't draw attention to ourselves. We do it with the right attitude or motive. We trust God more. Yes, we read the Bible, but we do it out of a desire to know God in a greater, deeper way. God, help me to understand you as I face this week, as I read the Bible. Yes, we still give, but we give generously. It's not because we have to. Oh, I got to make sure I, I, you know, give 10% of my, my income or I'm going to be, you know, not accepted by God. No, that's what a religious person might think and do. But we as believers in Jesus Christ, we give generously. Why? Because God gave generously of himself by giving us Jesus, dying for us. We give generously because we're good stewards, knowing that the resources that God's given us they're not ours, they're God's. And so we're stewards of what he's entrusted to us. We come to church not because my parents made me, well, maybe some of you might say that, but we should be coming here to church because we want to be with our family, worshiping God. We're all brothers and sisters. And so we do things the same things that possibly a religious person would do, but we do it because we know Jesus. See, Jesus determines what his disciples do. Well, moving on in our passage, in verse 16, it says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Now this... <laughs> This I learned from personal experience because back when I was a teenager, wearing jeans with holes in them were not popular yet. <laughs> and uh, so what I did was I, I had a, a couple of jeans that had a major hole in the, in the knee. So back again in my day, we would make our own shorts by just cutting jeans, you know, and making shorts. And again, I, I don't think that's done anymore. But so I did that, so I took my bottom part of my jeans and patched them on my old jeans with where the hole was. Didn't work. That, that puppy just ripped apart after a couple of days. That's what this verse is telling us. Old and new don't mix. It just doesn't go together. And see, the Pharisees had a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, thinking that all the things that they were doing earned them their right standing before God, where, in fact, it was pointing them to Jesus. All those things 
that they were doing pointed to Jesus. One author said, the formal regulations of the old religion must give way to the joy of the new. There's a huge contrast. And that's what verse 17, using a different illustration, but making the same point, says in verse 17, neither is the new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. See, the old garment, or I, I should say the, the old wine, you don't put into a new wineskin or vice versa. See, three things happen if we do that. And the passage is very clear. The skins will tear and be destroyed. The wine will be poured out, not drunk. And the skins will be ruined. So everything is, is destroyed, is is ruined. See, the old garments and the old wineskins, they represent this false understanding of Judaism based on doing good works. It's man-centered. What, what can I do to make God happy with me? In contrast, the new garments and the new wine represent the gospel. The good news that God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sins, and it's by grace. It's not anything that you've done. It's not because of the family you come from. It's not because of how much you make or don't make. It's completely by God's grace that we're saved by faith. That's the new garment and the new wine. We receive forgiveness because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do. A works righteousness system will always let us down. Always. Mainly because it simply doesn't work. And also, we can't be good enough. We never would know, am I good enough? Does my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? That's what a lot of people think, that are religious. You know, I'm a good person. You know, I haven't murdered anybody lately. I go to church. I give. We can't be good enough. The Bible makes that very clear. And, and that's the good news of the gospel because we don't have to be good enough. We have to acknowledge that we're not good enough and that Jesus is the one who's paid the price for us. See, Jesus introduces something new in contrast to the Pharisees' misunderstanding of Judaism. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. And so the Pharisees are trying to keep all these laws, thinking that if they just do enough, they'll be right with God. And Jesus is saying, guys, you're, you're missing the, the, the point. The bridegroom that Hosea talked about is right in front of you and you guys are still mourning, fasting, when you should be celebrating and feasting because Jesus is among them. See, the gospel is the gospel of grace, not of works. Faith-driven obedience is completely different from a work-driven obedience. 
See, a religious person and a true disciple of Jesus Christ, they both want to be o o obedient. They want, both want to obey what God says, but a person that is uh, religious is just doing it to earn their salvation, earn their standing with God, and a follower of Jesus Christ is doing it because they are doing it out of faith, trusting in God. And so our big idea this morning is that the gospel transforms our understanding towards good works. And here the example of good works is fasting. But the gospel transforms our understanding towards good works. See, true righteousness is not built on the law or on traditions or doing a certain religious things, but it's based on the finished work of Jesus. Jesus said, it is finished. I've taken care of sin and death forever. That's how we're righteous before God. I always love the, the illustration of the great exchange when you think about the cross. See, Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross. People have described, uh, told me that if you ever want to try to explain what hell is like to someone, you point them to the cross. Because on the cross, when Jesus died, he bore all the sin upon himself. God's wrath was poured out on him. That's a description or a picture of what hell is. Because if you reject Jesus, thanks but no thanks, people will have God's wrath upon themselves for eternity. That's a description of hell. So Jesus bore our sin upon himself, but the great exchange is that, that that's what he took, but then he gives us his righteousness. So when we die and stand before God, he will look and see Jesus and his shed blood when he looks at us rather than our own righteousness that are like filthy rags. So authors have described the gospel as the great exchange. So true righteousness comes only by the finished work of Jesus. So how are we to think about our religious acts of our faith? Well, our goal, as it was mentioned earlier, is to glorify God. Whatever we do, we want to glorify God. Cutting grass, taking out the garbage, doing dishes, whatever job you have to make a living, you want to glorify God in those times. With whatever we do, whether we're eating or drinking, we want to glorify God. But here at Highlands, we want to glorify God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we want to um, think about that as we do these religious acts. And probably one of the clearest passages in the Bible that really lays out, you know, how do we understand good works? Um, fasting, uh, giving to the church, uh, attending church, um, you know, praying, reading your Bible, any, any of these things. Well, it's found in Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. So let me just read 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this is a, a clear description of the gospel. We're saved by grace. It's not anything that, that is in me that made me get saved by God. So it's by grace that I've been saved through faith, through my uh, trusting, believing in what Jesus has done. And this is not your own doing. It's not anything I did. It's all Jesus, what he did. It's a gift of God. So, again, think about uh, gifts. You know, when we give someone a gift, uh, it's because I love you. I, I care about you. I, I like you. So, you know, uh, I, I work in a church, and we give our secretaries uh, gifts from time to time. I do that because I, I appreciate them. But if they, a, a gift is different than a salary or, or, or a wage. If, if, you know, when, if I went over to your house and, and cut your grass um, as a gift, as a favor for, to you because you were on vacation um, and you wanted to pay me, I'm like, no, 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 that was a gift. But if you and I had an arrangement and said, hey, I'll, I'll cut your grass for, you know, I don't know what people get paid to cut grass these days, but, you know, 20 bucks, then, then I've earned a wage, haven't I? Well, the gospel is not something that we earn. See, that's, that's the, the, the false way of thinking that the Pharisees and the disciples of John were thinking. A works-based righteousness. Salvation is not something we earn like a wage. It's a gift. And all we have to do with a gift is, is take it. Say thank you. That was, you didn't have to do that, but thank you. That's a gift. That's what verse 8 says. It's a gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So I'm not a disciple of Jesus Christ because I'm super intelligent or handsome or from a great family or an American or whatever we have that are tr that's true about ourselves. We can't boast about our salvation because it's completely by what God has done through Jesus Christ. But then verse 10 answers this question about, well, then what about good works? Do I then have to come to church and read the Bible and pray and fast and, and do these religious things? Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this is the, the very important truth that we need to understand, that the gospel transforms our understanding towards good works. See, faith always precedes good works for disciples of Jesus Christ, for, for Christians. It's because of what Jesus has done that we do good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's because of what Jesus has done, by grace we've been saved, therefore we were created as God's workmanship, created to do good works because of what Jesus accomplished. And so that's what Jesus is describing in our passage this morning. Hey, the bridegroom is with you. You have a relationship with him. So your life should be one that's known for being joyful. Even though Jesus is not with us physically, he's with us in spirit because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. 
And so, yes, it's appropriate to fast only when, it, when the, the need arises. But primarily, we understand that the things that we do as believers that are good and right, they're not to earn salvation. They're a result of our salvation. And so we can do good works for God's glory. And we should pray for God to reveal to those who are religious, thinking that they're right with God when they're actually not, and have them um, see that they need to receive the gospel as a gift rather than as a wage. So let's our, close our time this morning in prayer, shall we? God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage where they're confused, not understanding. How can this be that we're fasting and your disciples are not? And we pray, Lord, that you would help us see the difference between our faith and works and have them be in the right relationship with each other because of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.